Please stand for today's reading. We'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adultery in the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. <clears throat> in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You may be seated. Well, we've read our text. Why don't I pray, and uh, we will get started this morning with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's pray together one more time. Well, Father, um, we do uh, thank you for this glorious day, Lord. We know that all around the world, Lord, there is devastating news like this, Lord, like that which has come to the rights, Lord, and yet there is hope because of the goodness of your Son, because of the, the gospel of your Son. And Father, our prayer today is just simply that you would use even a tragedy like this uh, to bring, Lord, life in the midst of a situation that is only dark and only bleak, Lord. I know from past experience that it is often your pleasure, Lord, to use even the, the most dark and mysterious of providences, the most painful of providences for your glory and for your, for your name. And so, Father, we ask for the right family today that even in the midst of the funeral that you would uh, use Josh and use Jelena, uh, Lord, to, to be a light in the midst of darkness. We thank you for them, Lord. We commit them to you. And we also pray, Lord, for our text uh, today, Lord. We pray that you would be pleased to bless us and to open up our minds and our hearts and to open up our ears to hear what your Spirit is saying on something so, so important for a local church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I know that it's, uh, it's hard. Uh, it's cloudy outside, kind of brings kind of a gloomy feel you know, news like that certainly is difficult uh, to, to just kind of move on and, and difficult to preach after even talking about it. But uh, nevertheless, we have a very important passage of Scripture in front of us. And I want to focus on those two verses uh, there at the end of this section that was read to us. Verses 5 and verse 6 is really the, the third part of of a, of a series or a, or a series of messages that I entitled Success in the Ministry. Success in the Ministry. And we talked about the various elements that were necessary leading up to this, that it was the, the, the sobriety or the sincerity and the sobriety and the strength that is necessary for ministry. And here I think Paul gives us one more key element that's very important, and that is the need for selflessness. The need for selflessness or humility, but 
as is my custom, I wanted to keep the S's rolling here, so I used the word selflessness because that's really what's, what it is here. Uh, it, it, is an, it is an act of selflessness, ministry. Ministry is all about serving. That's what the word ministry means. It means the act of serving someone else. And in the act of serving someone else, you have to uh, uh, empty yourself of self. You have to empty yourself of your own ambition, your own desires, your own pursuits. In other words, you have to do what Scripture says. You have to be willing to put the interests of others ahead of yours. You have to be willing to humble yourself. And you know, this is so important for us to grasp at any level of ministry whatsoever. It doesn't matter what area of ministry you're participating in. Humility, I believe, is the key to ministry. That is to say that it doesn't matter how faithful you are if you're not humble. It doesn't matter how gifted you are if you're not humble. It doesn't matter how God has gifted you and how influential you have become, but if there is no humility there, there is a certain defect in your ministry, in your servanthood. You remember what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, when he's talking to Timothy about raising up other men to come into the ministry, others that would be uh, given the office of an overseer of a pastor, of an elder, he says one critical thing. He says, do not raise up a new convert, recent convert, or a novice, he says, because of the temptation to pride. He says, lest he falls into the snare of the devil. Uh, that's a big one. And Paul, having the wisdom and under the guidance and under the inspiration of the Spirit, knows that this is a critical mark for qualification here. That this young man that is seeking gospel ministry could be extremely gifted, extremely powerful, and there could be great and mighty unction placed upon him for preaching and for proclaiming the Word of God. But he says, if there is, however... The condition for him to slip into pride, which is, according seemingly here to Paul, which is more predominant in a recent convert, a novice, a young convert to the Christian faith than to others. And he says, be sure to eliminate that. You don't want to put anyone in a position of ministry that is so vulnerable to pride because Paul says, because he knows that pride is detrimental to the ministry. It's detrimental to the ministry. And so, I think the way that Paul speaks of his ministry here is so relevant to this issue. Because he, he conveys his ministry in a humble way. He, he depicts himself as a servant and Christ as Lord. And so, in order to have a proper or a successful ministry, two things I want to point out to you today that need to be in place. Two perspectives that we need to have that will guard us against harmful things like pride. Number one, we need to have a proper perspective of man, specifically before God. And then we need to have a proper perspective of God over man or before man. So there it is there, a proper perspective of man and a proper perspective of God. It seems simple enough, 
But this is really the way that Paul wants to argue here. Look at, uh, look at uh, the text here in verse 5. Again, he returns to his ministry. He's been sort of fleshing out the manner and the method and the means of his ministry. And he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now, obviously, that word bondservant comes from the Greek word doulos that simply means in its naked essence slave. It's a very controversial term because of what it conjure up, but be not deceived, that is exactly what it means. This is graphic language that Paul is using here. He is saying, Christ is the Lord, He is the Master, I am the slave, I am the servant. That's the way it works. But my question here is, why here? Why does Paul want to interject this here? What is it about the flow of the text or the thought of the author that sort of, uh, that causes him to sort of want to emphasize this and at this point? Well, let's just kind of go through the flow of the text. We're not going to be in these verses anymore. Lord willing, next week we're going to be looking at, beginning at verse 7, we're going to be looking at a different issue. But uh, if you look at the flow of the ministry here, you remember that Paul has been focusing on on his ministry. He says in verse 1, we have received this ministry. And then Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that his ministry can be commended, that his ministry is of such a nature, such an integrous nature, that you can commend his ministry. As a matter of fact, he says, I can commend my ministry before God to the conscience of all men. Anyone can look at my ministry, Paul would say, and see that I am above reproach, that no accusation for anything shady or crafty or any shameful or hidden thing would stick, and therefore his ministry could be commended. As a matter of fact, Paul says his whole ministry was one sweeping manifestation of the truth. That's what the ministry of Paul is. It's a big proclamation of truth. That's all. That is, that is his that is his, uh, his focus. That's, he is a broker of the truth of God. That's what he, his emphasis is. And, as a matter of fact, he says, if there's anything negative about the ministry, if there's anything that would hinder the gospel, he says, that is owing to the fact that unbelievers are blinded by the God of this age. Uh, my Bible says the God of this world, but really Aeonios is age. The God of this evil world system has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they reject the gospel. And so Paul is really sort of building the case for uh, the excellent nature of his ministry. And maybe even more closely to the context, right? What could be closer to the context of verse 5 uh, or verse 6? Verse 5. Okay? And in verse 5, he says, he says this, because there's a connection here. If Christ is the image of God, then the content of the gospel is His glory, not ours. And that's why he feels the need to sort of contrast his ministry here. So he says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, because he is the image of God, because it's his glory, not our glory. And so, lest the Corinthians think that Paul is somehow here boasting about himself, 
his own achievements, his own gifts, his own accolades. He is not. He's building the case that there needs to be a proper tension in ministry. We need to understand who we are rightly before God, and we need to understand who God is rightly. Um, in verse 7, if you jump down to 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he sort of sums this whole thing up. He sums up the whole issue that God is pleased to use servants, to use weak and uh, frail humans and sinners like you and I. And that's really going to take us in a whole different direction. But in verse 7, he, sum- he puts it in summary fashion. He says, we have this treasure, this glory. We have the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God in earthen vessels, he says. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Once again, directing the credit away from ourselves. And that's good news for us, by the way, that God is willing to use seemingly inadequate people. Earthen vessels, you know, conjures up the idea of a of a clay pot in the ancient world, of a, of, a, of, some, of a container that wasn't really of much use. You know, you go to Walmart, and they have those plastic containers. You can buy them, like, in packs of 10. And when you, usually when you're done using them, you might try to, you know, wash them once in a while, but um, you might try to put them in the dishwasher, but then they, they get all contorted because they're cheap. They're just cheap containers. They're not very glorious. They're not very good quality. If you would, that's us. We're cheap containers, there's nothing real glorious about us. But God, in His, in His grace and in His providence, He has chosen to put the treasure of His glory into us and to use us to spread that glory unto others. What a, what a grace. Ministry is truly a grace. Just like Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. It is a grace that we get to partake of. And really, there are several principles that are found right here in this whole issue. And I want to point out two in this verse, and then one more in verse 6. And, that's, and this is what he touches on. He touches on the proper focus of preaching and then the, the proper attitude of the preacher. You notice? Notice what he says there? The proper focus of preaching is Christ. Christ the Lord. That is the focus of preaching. He says, we do not preach ourselves. And so you know that the focus of preaching is not man. And so I don't know how anyone can have a man-centered church. Because this verse says that the very focus of all the kerygma, the preaching of the apostolic age and the apostolic churches, was not self. And if the Apostle Paul sees that he is not worth being the focus of preaching as an apostle then certainly no other pastor, no other preacher that has ever come after Paul should ever be the focus of preaching. This is why I preach the Bible. This is why I shy away from preaching even other things. You know, I'm just very committed to expositional preaching. I just like to go by the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, book by book, guiding you through the authorial intent of the Bible. What was the author thinking? Why did he write what he wrote? And I think that that's the best way to preach God's Word because it just lets it breathe on its own. It lets it say what it wants to say. And it keeps me, as John Calvin would say, from, from injecting my own fancies into my sermon. Fancies is not really a common word today, maybe for you, not for me, 
But uh, we know what he meant back then. He's just saying, look, you don't put in your own agenda. You don't put in your own pet doctrine. You don't put in your own emphasis. We just let the Word of God say what it says. Let it do its power. Let it do its purpose. Let it do its work in the people's lives, and they will transform their lives. That's why I'm so committed to expositional preaching. But look at the focus of Paul's preaching is even more specific. It is not just that he wants to preach the Bible, that's true, but that ultimately the whole aim of preaching the Bible is to preach Christ. So this sort of Christ-centered preaching, I love it, Edmund Clowney in his little book, powerful little book that he has on biblical theology and preaching, he says the aim of all preaching after you've done all your exegesis and all your exposition has to lead ultimately to Christ so that you walk away from here filled with Christ. You have tasted of Christ today. You have feasted on the person and work of Christ because your soul, brothers and sisters, is not satisfied with anything, other, anything less than that. Just like our brother Chris shared during the Lord's Supper. The soul is made to feast on Christ You are created and fashioned in such a way that you long to see the glory of Christ. You long to see Christ exalted and glorified, and and you love to behold Him, and you love to savor Him. I do. I hope you do. That's the only thing that satisfies me. And listen to what he says in another place. He already told this to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. And there he's talking about worldly wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, as I've said several times in the past, that doesn't mean that Paul just went to the Corinthians and over and over was just sort of repeating the phrase, Christ crucified, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. I think they would have got, okay, we got it, we got it, Christ crucified. But it's the implication of that phrase. It's It's what's embedded in the thought, in the idea, in the doctrine of Christ that was his focus So that the whole Bible, we could say, sort of intersects into the person and the work of Christ with these concentric circles that flow in and out of Him in every area of theology. I love it. I love it. It's exactly what the Bible says. The volume of the book is written of Him. It's written of Him. And uh, I think it's important, too, to see this selfless principle that he has in ministry because it dominated everything that he did so that the Apostle Paul is for us a great paradigm for preaching, for ministry, and for the Christian life. A great paradigm of humility. It's somebody that understands that God loves to be glorified through our weaknesses. He loves to be glorified through our limitations. He doesn't like to be glorified through our pride. He doesn't like to be glorified through, you know, trying to impress people with ourselves. He loves to be glorified through a broken-hearted, humble, contrite people that, that, that love to allow Christ to take the preeminence in all things. Matter of fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says that 
after he had pleaded with God to remove a certain ailment from him, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for uh, power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That's amazing, isn't it? If you're always trying to show people how great and powerful and mighty you are, then the power and might of Christ might not shine as brightly. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does he mean by that? When I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying when he's weak, when he's, when he's in tune with his own finiteness, his own limitations, his own frailty, then he's strong in the sense that then he's useful. Then God can shine through him. Then God can use him. He's ready, useful for the master, for his work. The focus of preaching, therefore, has to be Christ. Has to be Christ. And notice what he says. It's not just Christ, but it's Christ as Lord. And so the focus of preaching Christ is to preach him as Lord. And when you say that Christ is Lord, you're saying certain unnegotiable things. You're saying that the historical Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be. That he is the sovereign of the world. That he is the judge of all the earth. That he is the master. That we are his slaves. That he's in charge. That we take our orders from him. That we are under his infinite authority. And that we worship him as the kurios, the Lord. Which is another way of saying that he is God. He is God. Now, the second thing is Paul doesn't just say that preaching consists of, of this, but it also consists of a proper attitude. He says, he says uh, not just that he preaches Christ as Lord, but no, look at the way he reflects upon himself. He says, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. See, there's, so there's a proper focus and there's a proper attitude. And that attitude is just as important. I think what's amazing about this is that Paul is saying it's not just enough to have good preaching, good-sounding preaching. It's not just enough to be eloquent or to be good with words, to be a good communicator. But God wants to get to the heart of the preacher. He wants to get to the heart of the believer in everything that he does. He tests the hearts. He tests our sincerity to see of what sort our service is. A conceited preacher is not a good preacher. It doesn't matter how excellent his exegesis is. An egotistic preacher is not a good preacher, regardless of how eloquent he is. A self-willed preacher, a domineering preacher, is not a good preacher, no matter how powerful his voice sounds. Like, you know, John Piper's got an incredibly, you know, attractive voice for preaching. Well, some of you, some of you can't, maybe don't like it. I like it. I think it's very powerful, right? Especially the way he says certain things, you know, like Christ. Or, anyway, I won't, try to, I won't try to imitate him, but you know, what, you know what I mean. And they said that Whitfield was a very eloquent preacher, powerful preacher. Spurgeon was a powerful preacher. 5,000 people came to hear Spurgeon one time. And there was these group that came that were of a, of a higher education. They were, these were the seminarians, the ones getting degrees. And Spurgeon was preaching to these men, and they all came in wearing these nice suits and these big top hats, and they came in real dignified. 
And they said Spurgeon preached a sermon that day that had every one of those men in tears. You see, because I believe that Spurgeon, one of the reasons why God loved to bless the preaching of Spurgeon is because Spurgeon was so acquainted with his deep need of humility and brokenness in the ministry. So it's not just enough to hear good preacher. The manner is not enough. God wants to get to the motive. Notice he says, we are your servants for Christ's sake or Jesus' sake. It is for the glory of God that we serve you. That's his ultimate motivation. That is to say that God desires all of our servanthood to be worshipped to him for his glory. It should redound to the glory of God. Everything we do, brothers and sisters, in our lives should be an act of worship. And everything we do in the church is worship. It might not be very good worship at times, but it is. No matter where you serve, whether you preach, whether you clean, whether you lead worship, whether you're doing sound ministry, whether you're in the children's ministry or music ministry, or whether you're open-air open preaching and evangelistic ministry, it doesn't matter where you serve, what God is after is your heart. God wants to know that your heart is pure before Him. God wants to know the quality of the thing that you do. You think God is impressed by the things you do? I mean, you really think God is impressed by the numbers that you can pile up and tally up of this or that? God cares about the quality of ministry. And he gives us opportunities everywhere. And this is what I want us to see, is that as believers, as, as Christians, as members of the church, we have opportunity everywhere. Opportunity in our homes. Opportunity in the church. Opportunity at work. Opportunity everywhere. And God is after more than just what you do in that opportunity, but how you do it, whether you're doing it with the right heart. William Hendrickson said something I thought was so good. He says, The Lord grants us opportunity for service in accordance with our ability to make use of it. He says, Accordingly, since not all men have the same ability, therefore not all have the same or equal opportunity. In the day of judgment, the number of opportunity for service will not matter. The, quest, the only question that will matter is, Have we been faithful in their use. That is how the things that we do for God are not going to burn up on the day of judgment, is if we did them with a right heart. And of course, if we did it according to God's word and in truth, right? It's not just being sincere. No, you need both. You need the right focus, the right content, and you need the right heart. A lot of sincere people doing a lot of bad ministry, okay? But God wants both. Now, when these two principles are present in the ministry of any preacher, it will keep him from preaching himself. I love that. I drove this home to myself last night. I love that phrase. I don't preach myself. I'm not here to preach myself. I'm not here to tell you how great I am and this is what I'm doing. This is what. And I get up here and I start telling story after story about what I've done. And, you know, I start preaching my pet doctrine every week, right? No, that's not what I'm called to do. I have been given my orders what to preach. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. And that is such a solemn 
calling, that he, call, he literally calls God and the angels as witness that this is your task, and this is also a safeguard. I'm terrified of preachers that are always preaching theories, right? You see this? I drive by churches all the time. New series, dream big. What? What does that mean? I'm scared of people's dreams. Anyway, you know, but all these sermon series all the time, they just seem to go on and on, and it just looks like all they're trying to do is kind of advertise the way the world advertises, and they, they got their billboard out to you, and then they're trying to get you in the church. Well, my friends, listen, the only thing I have for you is the Bible. And I hope that's good enough for you, and I think it is, or else you wouldn't be coming back every week. Somehow you come back every week. I just, very, very strange people. I think Calvin said it the best. John Calvin says, He that would preach Christ alone must of necessity forget himself. I love it. A complete abandonment of yourself. Okay, so what? You know, you're funny. We get it. Preach the word. You're smart. We get it. Preach the word. Okay? I know we think you're, you, know, you think you're all, you know, your personality is what people need to hear. They need to hear the word. They need to hear the word. Calvin goes on to say this. All pastors of the church are admonished as, um, as to their state and condition. For by whatever title of honor they may be distinguished, they are nothing more than the servants of believers. And unquestionably, they cannot serve Christ without serving His church at the same time. I like that because it brings us to a local church focus. This is what Paul was conceiving, I believe, when he was preaching about all of this, is that the servanthood is primarily done in and through the local church in connection with the local church. The local church is so important. There's nothing more important in terms of ministry than your church. Not the ministry you got going on on the side. Not the ministry of some parachurch organization that you know. Not some missions agency. The most important ministry on planet earth is the local church. Because that's where Jesus Christ put his authority. You know that a parachurch organization does not possess the authority of Christ? They can't excommunicate someone. In the words of the famous rapper theologian Stephen the Levite, he said, the church is God's uh, authoritative institution on planet earth. That's right. This is where God has invested his authority. And you know what? By nature, as sinners, we hate authority. We, we don't like pastors. We don't like structure. We don't like institutional, institutional authority over us. I see it all the time. I preach to college kids all the time. Every week, I'm out preaching to college kids. And boy, when you mention that they need to go to church, those that claim to be Christians, or oh, what do I need to church? I'm a Christian. I just kind of do it on my own. I don't need anybody over me. They're just going to ask me for money, and, you know, I've been hurt. And Well, I don't discredit the fact that people have been hurt. I've been hurt. Oh, I have been hurt in the local church. But that doesn't keep me from obeying God's commands. That doesn't keep me from being obedient to the fact that I have to join myself to a body of believers in the local church. It's so important to do this. Well, the second thing is not just having a proper view of yourself, but you also have to have a proper perspective of who God is. Okay? 
so that that becomes, if you would, sort of a, the motivation. And this is the third principle, that there is the right focus in preaching, the right uh, attitude in preaching, and there's the right motivation. What motivated Paul to be this servant? So I believe what is found in this verse, verse 6, is an analogy. There is sort of a, an analogous relationship between creation and salvation. And that motivates a humble, Christ-centered obedience, a humble, Christ-centered ministry and servanthood in the church. That's what it produces. God, uh, Paul is crediting God with creation, salvation, and illumination in this text. Let's read it again. Verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So you see that reference there. God who said, and then he says, the one who has shown. There's the analogy. There's the connection. In other words, he's saying the same God, the same omnipotent God who called the universes, who, who spoke the galaxies into existence so that at his all-powerful command spring forth infinite amount of galaxies into our universe so that we can look up in the space and you can't count the stars Abraham so that you can look with Hubble telescope and you've only began to scratch the depth of what God did at creation always amazed me how people believe in evolution just amazing is anything more demonic is anything more satanic than the delusion, the worldview that, that whispers in your mind, nothing created everything, and here we are. No, 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 something did create everything. God, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. His Word created obedience. His Word created reality. And just like God, the powerful creator, omnipotent creator God, created the physical realm, the physical reality all around us, He also created the spiritual reality in us. That's His point. He is the one who has shown in our hearts. Isn't that amazing? We go from galactic glory down to our hearts to microscopic, no, 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 beyond microscopic, beyond that, to a spiritual, invisible, infinite glory. The thing that God has wrought in our hearts is analogous to what He did in creation. I love it. I was just in Baltimore. I couldn't believe how beautiful the trees were there. All these blue pines. Texas, we don't have a whole lot of that. We've got some flat land couple lakes. You know, that's about it. A lot of sky. Sky's beautiful. But man, Baltimore was gorgeous. It was beautiful. Green trees everywhere. Everywhere you drove, you felt like you're in a maze of trees. The beauty and the wonder and the vastness of creation. But guess what? That same God, that same God has done something in your heart. He has given regeneration to your heart. He has vivified you. Just like He gave life to the created order, He gives life to your heart. 
He says, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, this is interesting. Now, you see the word there in your Bible, to give the light. So God pours something into your heart, and then Paul says, this is a purpose clause in the Greek, to give. Now, you could either take that in one of two ways, to give the light in your heart, or so that through your heart, light would be given. That's a hard, I got lots of scholars on both sides right there. Okay, that grammatical nuance could go either way. It's true. God did uh, give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in our hearts, in the face of Jesus. It is something, this is what He did in our hearts. But it is also true that having poured into our hearts this light, we, because we have been given this light, we shine it, we beam it to everyone else around us. Are you doing that? Are you being a light? Are you shining, beaming it out of your heart? Are you allowing the light that God has shown in your heart to shine on other people? Because guess what? Just like there was a, a void and, there was, and a darkness in the creation, people's hearts lay under a canopy of darkness. In a shroud of darkness, it's the darkness of depravity. It is the darkness of unbelief. It's the darkness of their sin. And brothers and sisters, we have the light that they need. We have the glory that they need to see. We have the knowledge. Notice how this is imparted. He gives us both two things here. He gives us both how this is done and where this is done. How people, including ourselves, come to see the glory of God. It is through knowledge. Notice, it's the knowledge of the glory of God through the gospel. Through the gospel. By preaching the gospel. By His word. That's how we come to know the things about the glory of God. But He also tells us where it's found. It's in the face of Jesus. Now when I say that, what do you think? Do you think in your mind's eye a face? Are you starting to you know, visualize what Jesus might have looked like? Is that what he's saying? The physical face of Jesus? Well, for sure, the whole Godhead dwelt in him bodily. But when he uses this Greek word prosopon, it has a lot more to do than just Jesus' physical face. It means that which Jesus represents. It means everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has done. That is what face means here. It's speaking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, that is what sinners need. That is what people that are in darkness need so desperately. They need what Jesus is and what He has done. They need His cross work. They need Him who He is, the Lord, the Sovereign, the Creator, their Maker. They need Him. They need the God-man, the Theanthropic man. They need to know Him as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord. But they also need what He has done, ultimately, through His cross. Paul is always thinking when he's talking about what Jesus has done, he always has the cross at the very apex and at the very center and at the very heart of everything he's talking about. The cross and the subsequent glories of the cross. 
That's what people need, and that's what we have. And so, again, I press you. Are you being a light? Let's go back to uh, Christianity 101, right? Are you being a light in the midst of darkness? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men. This is not option. This is an imperative. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I love this verse. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn. I love it. When people see your path, they see your conduct, they see the way you live your life, it is like the dawning of light. They see the light of God in it. Romans 13, 12 says, The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and let's put on the armor of light. The armor of light. Clothe yourselves, brothers and sisters, with your witness. Clothe yourself with your testimony, with your with your with the light that God has given you. Last, last verse, okay? Why don't we turn there? Again, I've shown you this before, but just to show you how immensely practical this is. Just to show you how immensely practical every single one of us can allow the light to shine in the darkness by the way that we live. You don't got to be a theologian. You don't need to know Greek. You just need to be godly. That's how your light is going to shine more than anything. Is you, when, you, when you hold the... When you hold out the gospel to a sinner, the question then is, are you godly too? You know, Because sometimes you can do more damage than good if you're not living according to what you say you believe. If you're undermining and contradicting the very truths that you are proclaiming and calling men to. But look at Philippians 2.14. He says this, Do all things without grumbling and disputing. That's a pretty practical thing. I think we all struggle with that from time to time. Some of us more than others. Right? Grumbling, disputing, right? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's the darkness. Among whom you, among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's so beautiful. You mean that by the absence of my grumbling and complaining, I can shine as a light in a dark world? Yes. Because at work, when everybody else is grumbling and cussing and backstabbing the boss, you, by your silence, appear as a light in the world. So people see, hey, how come you're not gossiping like everybody else is? How come you're not talking trash on the boss? That's what we're doing over here in this huddle. Don't you want to join our huddle? No, don't join their crowd. Don't join in on the dirty jokes. Don't join in on the gossip. Shine as a light. Be different. Be courageous. Have courage to stand up and say, no, I will not go the way of the world, the broad road that leads to destruction. I'm going to stay on the difficult road, the narrow road, the road that leads to eternal life, even if there's few that find it. God has poured out His light into our hearts so that we can live like this to the glory of His name. Father, I do pray that You would give us conviction, give us courage. Father, I confess 
It's easier for me to preach to 200 college students than it is to hand out a tract sometimes at Walmart. Lord, I pray that you would make us courageous. Help us to realize, Lord, that if God be for us, who can be against us? God, help us to be like the Apostle Paul with broken humility, with broken gratitude that you poured out your light into our hearts and therefore help us to then shine our light into a dark and dismal and dying and depraved world. Father, we possess the only hope the world has. And God teaches that as inadequate as we may think that we are, Father, it is often your delight to be glorified through such inadequate people. For just as Paul says, consider your calling, brethren, that not many noble, not many mighty according to the flesh, not many wise. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the things that were not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Father, thank you that you have qualified us to have a place in your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I just wanted to leave you with a reflection back in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians where Paul says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And I pray that God will give you great boldness because He has given us this hope.